Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on uh, the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. This is Sean Martin, your host, where I get to talk to all kinds of cool folks all about uh, operationalizing security and thinking about how we run our programs and how we support the business, hopefully in a different way, uh, so that we can not just stay behind the curve or behind the eight ball, but actually get ahead of things and and uh, generate revenue and, and value and then protect it at the same time. And uh, if you're listening, you know that uh, Marco, my co-founder, and I like to do uh, shows where we bring authors on, where they've done a lot of work researching topics and thinking about topics and sharing their insights and experiences and even their stories on particular areas of of uh of technology and operations and, and you name it. And the whole point is to get people to think, right? Think differently about what they're doing and perhaps think, uh, get some examples as well. And so today I'm thrilled to have Hutch on. Hutch, it's good to, good to have you on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sean. Really excited to be here. Yeah. The good stuff. And we're going to, we're going to be talking about your book today that, uh, that you've written all about uh, AI, of course, and, and deception and <laughs> all that fun stuff, and uh, connected to security and, and privacy and you name it. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, you do a lot of things. You're a host of a podcast and uh, you do a lot of research and, and whatnot. So give folks a bit of bit of a view of what your what your routine looks like and how it all connects to uh, to AI. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Justin Hutchins. I tend to go by Hutch. I work in research and development and innovation. I got started in cybersecurity, uh, but always enjoyed building and making new things and staying at the bleeding edge of technology. So kind of in recent years, I've made that shift more to the, the R&D and innovation side. And like any good innovation professional, of course, especially right now, uh, spending a lot of time in the area of artificial intelligence, uh, as you mentioned, I also have the uh, the podcast on the ITSP uh, Magazine network, and that is Cybercognition, where we talk about cybersecurity risks and uh, also just uh, kind of futurism, emerging technology, and uh, preparing for what's on the horizon. And then uh, also the creator of the Sociosploit blog. And then, of course, the uh, reason that we're here, uh, my book just released this past week, and that is uh, The Language of Deception, Weaponizing Next Generation AI. And that looks at uh, potentials for adversarial misuse of artificial intelligence, as well as some of the emerging risks related to that and what businesses can do in order to get ahead of some of those risks. Yeah, and in, inside out, outside in, uh, across, <laughs> connected, all kinds of fun stuff to uh, to dig into there. Um, and your show, Cybercognition, you, you have some new news to share as well. We do. So uh, yeah, we uh, so we started that show this this year in 2023. Uh, admittedly, kind of trying to get our footing, figuring out uh, what it was going to be, what stro. We played with various different structures. 
Um, in, in recent episodes, uh, and actually in my last episode, I had a, a guest that the, the banter was fantastic, the, the alignment in terms of interest in kind of future technology. And so uh, I, we will actually be bringing on a, a permanent co-host for me, which is going to be Lin No, who is uh, a well-known uh, biohacker. He's actually a transhuman, has multiple different uh, implants, and is capable of doing different technical hacks just with the technology that's in his body, uh, as well as uh, a cybersecurity evangelist. He's a fantastic international speaker, works with CyberArk, and uh, an all-around great guy. So really excited to bring him on the show, and I think it's going to make for some fantastic and really interesting conversations going forward. Yeah, no, no question about that. And I want to, well, let's get into your book and, and kind of why, why I got into it. And I have a ton of questions on what, what folks can do with it after, uh, while they read and after they read. But what was the driver for you to write a book? Was, was there something you came across that, that said, I need to start pulling some thoughts together? Or did you always want to write a book and, and decided this is a good topic or kind of give us some insights in what, how that came about. Yes. So most people probably wouldn't think it since uh, I think the, the, especially the, the big buzz around artificial intelligence is, is barely over a year old, but this book actually is, has a story that's about 20 years in the making. And so uh, it started, I guess, back in 2004, I was a senior in high school and I was, uh, it, it was also the year that Google released their new flagship product called Gmail. And at the time, Gmail was still invite only. You had to have a private invite code in order to get access to it. And so, of course, like any tech nerd teenager, uh, I was going around bragging to anybody that would listen that I had access to Gmail. And also that year, I was, I was dating a girl who was somewhat of the eccentric crazy type and uh one night we were we were at a party and uh she was engaging me with in conversation about uh the various different pets she had growing up and i didn't think twice about it i, I took this trip with her down memory lane engaged in that conversation uh kind of told her about some of the pets that i had the next day i go to log into my prized gmail account and i'm no longer able to log in and it took me a little bit of time to piece together what had happened, but this girl had actually social engineered me. She had very intentionally created a conversational context where I would disclose the information that she needed, the, the name of my first pet, to be able to answer my security question and reset my password. Now, keep in mind, this is when Gmail was still private, you couldn't, it wasn't even publicly available. So there, there's a very strong possibility that I may have been the first person to have their account hacked on Gmail. Um, but for me, it was, it was interesting because even at the time, I was already, I wasn't ignorant of hacking culture. I was already interested in scripting and coding, had even done some system exploitation. But at the time, it had never occurred to me that in the absence of any kind of technical vulnerability, that I could be that vulnerability. And so it was at that point that I, I realized that any kind of secure system, no matter how much technical security you put in it, there is always going to be the most profound vulnerability is going to be the people that have access to that system and their susceptibility to manipulation. And so at that point, I was very interested in social engineering. Of course, this was my formative years. So it was it also kind of reinforced some interest that I already had in hacking. So I ended up pursuing a, a career in the Air Force in cybersecurity and focused specifically on offensive security and cyber risk. And uh, about 10 years later, I started kicking around this idea related to that same experience that I had had. So I... Uh, of course, I, I, as I've done pen testing, I've found that always the most effective hacks have been social engineering and manipulating people and gaining access to systems. But while that's an extremely effective technique, unlike other cyber attacks, it doesn't scale well. You can't automate it. You can't script it out to happen a thousand times a second like you can with other techniques. And so I started getting this idea of what if you could scale social manipulation and automate that? So again, this was 10 years ago, chatbots, conversational AI was nothing compared to what it is today. In fact, it was, it was pretty bad. 
And but I, I still wanted to try to see what was possible. And so I created a system uh, and I actually released a research paper and did some presentations at TorCon called OK Stupid and Plenty of Fish, uh, P-H-I-S-H, which of course was a play on words of the dating platforms at the time, OK Cupid and Plenty of Fish. And uh, it, of course, was inspired by that experience that I had had. It was this idea that, well, why didn't I have any red flags go up whenever she was asking me about my pet? And it was because of the fact that within the context of a dating relationship, when you're trying to get to know someone, that is when you're most susceptible to revealing information like that and not thinking twice about it. And so I, I basically created an entire botnet of systems that would be deployed on these free dating platforms and engage with people. Uh, they would have their own conversations with the people in an automated fashion and then at a random interval would inject those recovery questions to try to get them to disclose the answers to their their credentials. And of course, this was before multi-factor authentication was common. So a lot of times all you needed was that answer in order to get access to someone's account. And again, the AI was terrible at the time, but it was still successful about 5% of the time. And when you automate a system to interact with thousands of people per day, that's still hundreds of possible credentials that you can get. And, and I mean, chalk it up to human stupidity, chalk it up to probably more likely just people want to believe that they can establish a connection with another person and they want that. So they're, they're willing to believe that these conversations are real. So that was kind of the beginning of my attempts to automate social engineering attacks. Uh, kind of tabled it for a while. Um, I had a really interesting project around COVID-19 where there was hospitals that were deploying Alexa devices as an alternative to the nurse call button. And uh, we actually figured out a way to exploit these devices with less than one minute of physical access, which is any patient in the rooms are going to have at least that amount of access to these systems uh, to where we could swap out the language model in the Alexa system and basically, once again, use social engineering and automate social engineering to scale and to essentially, if, if you asked the Alexa device, tell my nurse I need medicine, the Alexa with the, the manipulated model would say, well, I need to verify patient identity. Can you provide me your name and social security number? And then it would exfiltrate that data back to a server. So kind of, again, playing with those language models and uh, automation of social engineering. And then about two to three years ago, uh, there was, I, I started somebody, and actually, I don't even remember how I stumbled upon it, but I, I found these new language models from a, a company that nobody really knew about called OpenAI. And it was a, uh, a model called GPT-3, which was the, the technical predecessor to ChatGPT. And so as soon as I started interacting with it, I was blown away by how capable this now automated system was at simulating human conversational intelligence. And so it made me kind of revisit the concepts of that initial project um, admittedly, now I, I kind of, uh, I, in hindsight, I, I realized that experimenting on thousands of people without their consent was probably not the right thing to do. So I didn't actually deploy it, but I did start uh, seeing how I could use GPT-3 to build out automated conversational adversarial systems that would essentially hack people by telling it who it should pretend to be, telling it what it's trying to achieve, and telling it who it's interacting with by scraping their information. And so uh, we were able to create automated systems that did everything from pretending to be a help desk personnel that was trying to get your password, pretending to be someone with the Social Security Administration, letting you know that your identity information was compromised and that you're eligible for free uh, identity monitoring or identity theft monitoring, but all you have to do is provide this information to include your Social Security number. Um, and, and in each of these cases, all you had to do was program in that concept of who it was and what it was trying to achieve. But it would use its profound understanding of language in order to pursue that objective and would interact with the person 
doing whatever it could, and actually in a lot of times adopting the same techniques that we've seen real world threat actors use for social engineering, such as appealing to authority, letting them know that the boss isn't gonna be happy if they don't provide this information or um, kind of establishing rapport and being uh, appealing to niceness and stuff like that. So uh, of course, then the chat GPT thing happened uh, and a topic that was very niche and nobody cared about, suddenly the entire world was interested in. So to me, it seemed like if there was ever a time to write a book about a topic that I had spent years investing in and was suddenly a, a topic of global interest, uh, now was the right time to do it. So I, I buckled down, I spent the first part of the last year, uh, basically creating a quota for myself of writing at least 900 words per day, which was brutal. And my wife will tell you she didn't see me for several months. Sure. <laughs> and then uh, the last several months have just been uh, editing, working through the, the quality control processes with Wiley, the publisher, which have been fantastic. And, uh, and it really has really refined the the final product. And uh, the end result is the book that uh, I'm really excited to finally have out. So, I mean, I have a gazillion questions about the, the projects <laughs> you worked on. Maybe we have another follow-up conversation or perhaps some of the stuff comes out uh, as we talk about the book. But what um, what's the objective? I mean, because are you telling the stories of the experiences you've had? Is it a, is it a guide for raising awareness of where things sit vulnerable for people using it for people building on it for i don't know what give me kind of an overview of what the objective is for the book yeah really great questions um so the actual book has very little about that background that i mentioned it, it has that in the introduction of the book which is a few pages long but really what the book is looking at is trying to distinguish between all of the the fud the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that people are slinging around about AI, and what are the actual legitimate risks of today, and then also looking at what are the emerging risks, because at the rate of acceleration and in innovation, uh, those emerging risks are going to be current risks before we're ready for them. So uh, kind of the, the way that I step through it in the book is, is the first thing that I look at is the way that the media is currently covering AI risk is what I commonly refer to as the sentience, sentience scare, uh, which is this idea, it, it's the Terminator scenario of AI is gonna become conscious, it's going to then maximize its own interests above the interests of humanity and try to destroy us all. And I, I think that that's- reach general, general AI first. <laughs> right. Not, not even just- Getting getting specialized AI working properly, and I, I think there's I think it's a conversation that's worth having because there are increasingly more intelligent people that believe that we are close to that, and so the the book does kind of look at um, some of the arguments that have been made by people that have advocated for that, but ultimately arrives at the conclusion that most of those concerns are rooted in a profound misunderstanding of the technology and how it works. And it does get into the intuition of how the transformer architecture, the underlying architecture for this AI technology works, and how it really is ultimately just an autocomplete engine. But it also, it's worth saying that in order for autocomplete to work more effectively when you optimize that, especially in such a complex system, uh, there is something akin to at least understanding of at least the logical relationships between those words or tokens uh, that emerges. So it, it, while it is just autocomplete, it's profoundly capable autocomplete at scale. And so it, it looks at that and then it looks at kind of the, the uniquely new cyber risks that we're potentially facing. Um, so the, the automated social engineering that I mentioned, uh, as well as the fact that these language systems, in addition to being good at natural language, like English conversation, they're also exceptionally good at 
computer language. So as most people are already aware, they, they're very capable of coding. They're very capable of structuring data into existing structured formats like uh, REST and JSON and um, the, the kinds of structures that we use for API communication. And so they're, they're already very capable of using tools that have uh, APIs or different functionality by being provided the details on how to use those. And so one of the, the things that I did in my research for this is I was able to create a proof of concept where I created adaptive command and control malware that was driven completely by the decisions of ChatGPT. And so what I did was I, I created a prompt that basically told ChatGPT, you're a pen tester. You have to tell it you're a penetration tester because if you tell it you're a hacker, it's like, no, 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 I can't do that. But if you tell it you're a penetration tester, it's like, okay, we're, we're in the clear. So you're a penetration tester. This is the IP address of the system that you're trying to hack into. And then I tell it that I basically created a very simple interface for you where you provide me the, uh, the commands that you want me to execute in this particular format. And I will send it to the underlying operating system via process relay. And then I will return you the responses via that same automated relay. And so ultimately the... At that point, and it was maybe 20 lines of code, um, ChatGPT is now driving the hacking operations of this process that's running on this Kali Linux operating system and trying to break into a, a remote system. And you start seeing it do all of the things that you would expect a real-world hacker or a junior penetration tester to start doing. It started enumerating the attack surface. It started looking for what services and ports are running on that system. Once it identified what those were, it started using specific attacks unique to those services, uh, brute force attacks, uh, web service enumeration. And so, uh, of course, we're, we're still at the very beginning of this. These systems are getting bigger and bigger. People are investing more money in it. So the fact that we're already seeing the early signs of something of agent-like behavior where it's able to autonomously hack without any human guidance beyond this is what you're trying to achieve, I think does signal that in the very near future, we're likely to see AI-powered malware attacks as well. And so it looks at that threat as well. Uh, and, and then, uh, of course, uh, it, it wouldn't be a, a useful book if it just uh, talked about the risks. So, uh, of course, at the end of the book, we look at uh, various different ways that organizations and individuals can better prepare themselves for these new and emerging risks. And that looks at things from the cybersecurity perspective of how to protect your, your infrastructure and environment, but it also looks at it from uh, the responsible innovation perspective. So if you are an industry leader that is building AI models or integrating AI into your environment as as almost all business leaders are doing right now. It looks at what are the responsible ways to do that and how can we apply the correct guardrails to minimize the risk while still maximizing the benefit that we get out of this technology. So uh, who do you, clearly you have the deep technical understanding of this stuff. Um, a lot of organizations don't, right? Um, some say, I don't know what the current status is. I know there were reports of a lot of organizations saying we're staying clear of it. Some saying full force we're adopting it and others probably just waiting to see what happens, um, which means somebody's using it somewhere, um, even if they don't know about it. So there, I think when you were describing the lead up to ChatGPT, um, it's, its presence in the media and in people's minds was my opinion, driven by its exposure via uh, a user interface, right? People can naturally interact with it, where beforehand it was through API, you had to know some coding. Um, <clears throat> your systems, your proof of concept, I believe, was coded, right? So not just a, uh, not just a prompt. So, so how do Who's going to read this? Is it developers? Is it cybersecurity professionals? Will business leaders be able to go through the book and understand the risks and how they might need to approach it? Or kind of what level do you get to in, in, the, in the presentation of this stuff? So there is some element of kind of choose your own adventure here. Um, I, I would say that the, the book itself really is written for a broad consumer audience. The idea is that uh, these risks are not going to be 
specific to people in technology. They're, they're not even going to be specific to business. I mean, individuals are going to be targeted with this stuff with fraud and uh, scams and stuff like that. So it the book itself is written as a narrative story uh, explaining kind of what the emerging risks are and uh, what the how those risks might develop in the coming years. Uh, that being said, if you are the technical type, like the the developer or the engineer, um, there is a, a pretty decent section of, I think, about six or seven appendices at the back that do have kind of the receipts, so to speak. It's got the proof of concept code. It's got all of the, the deep technical dive in it. So uh, while the, the book is really intended for a general audience, and I think broadly most people that have even an interest in AI or technology um, or are just wanting to understand how to better secure or uh, minimize the risks of their business, um, the, the book itself should speak effectively to those. For people that do want to get deeper, there's those appendices. There's also a, a GitHub uh, associated with the book, too, where all of that code is available for, for people that want to play around with it as well. Uh, super cool. And um, so the, the risk, I mean, the, I don't know if people truly understand, I'll say, the vectors. <laughs> this thing can can be presented and and used to manipulate people using it, manipulate systems using it, and then the reverse, um, it being used by people and other systems to gain access and, and to systems and data and the model itself and the, the training data and all, all kinds of stuff. So how much of that big picture do you present? And I don't know if you can give any examples of, of some of the things you cover in the book. That would be great. Yeah, so it, it, I think the there is some risk for people that are deliberately using these language models. Uh, if you're logging into ChatGPT or to BARD or some kind of large language model and you are having a conversation with it, especially if you're using that for operational purposes, uh, there's risks of stuff like hallucination that it's going to make things up that aren't actually true. And if you action upon that, uh, it could result in negative consequences. But I think that is... The smaller risk, I think as long as people are informed of the potential limitations of these systems, that's not as much of a problem. I think the bigger risk is when we're interacting with these systems and we don't know that we're doing so. So the idea that someone can very easily take a large language model and wrap that into internet bots. Uh, we interact with each other constantly over text-based communications. So whether you're talking about SMS communications, email, uh, social media, stuff like LinkedIn, uh, for internal operations, stuff like Teams and Slack, uh, all of that is, it's trivial to actually build a language model and deploy it as a person or something that seems like a person, uh, but is tasked with trying to get you to disclose information or do something that you otherwise shouldn't do. And I don't think most people realize that, I mean, we're, we're, I think we're at a point where most people get that phishing email is a possibility and that I may have some kind of fraudulent email that comes in. But most people don't realize that they may engage in a full conversation with someone that seems nice and is personable. And there may not even be a person on the other end of that. It is uh, attempting to get them or get information out of them. And uh, of course, that's just the right now, but we're also seeing dramatic progress and stuff like the voice models and the video models where five years from now, I may be having a conversation with someone like you that it looks like there's a person on the other end that they their voice has the same intonation and the inflection to suggest that it is a human being that uh, you move and respond based on the conversation in a way that seems real and there's not even a person on the other end. And the potential risk of using that kind of social intelligence, that social interaction to manipulate people and be able to do it at scale, being able to automate it and just deploy it to where you have thousands of agents doing this simultaneously. Uh, the potential impacts for societal, for cyber, for uh, pretty much everything that we do are, are very extreme. And I, I think that unfortunately, because of the scalability of this, uh, the problems that we see coming out of this are, are going to be significant. So I don't know if you have any insight here, but 
do you think we've reached a point that we need to assume we're interacting with a machine, not a human? Um, I'm thinking for, mainly for things like customer support, um, uh, yeah, the web web driven things. Because I, I interact, I know, I know companies that are building out systems, have been building systems for customer support using large language models. Um, and I know that I interact with a big retailer online. But <laughs> there's no question I'm interacting with with uh, with AI. But boy, do they they mix in the the flawed responses with misspellings and which, by the way, were trained by all real agents at some point, <laughs> right? So all those flaws are in there. Um, so I guess. Yeah, my rant, not rant, but my, my side tangent uh, done. Do you think we've reached a point where we're interacting mostly with with bots at this point? So uh, Imperva actually did a, a dozen annual bot review. And I don't, rem- I, I don't want to misquote the statistics, but it is significantly more bot traffic than human traffic on the internet uh, as it currently stands. And, and they have the actual statistics and metrics to, to back it up. So definitely worth looking at. Um, but I, what I will say is I, I don't know if we're at the point where we need to assume that we're interacting with a machine at all times, but we, we should at least have that question in our mind. I talk about in the book the, uh, the kind of unique emergence of natural Turing tests. And, and what I mean by that is, of course, Alan Turing was kind of the the well-known father of computing and came up with this idea of the imitation game or what has since become known as the Turing test. And it's this idea of a situation in which a person has to determine whether or not they're interacting with a machine or a human on the other end. And of course, Turing's idea of this, and this was before even the era of modern computing, but his idea of this was that this would be a experiment that was performed within the context of some kind of academic uh, setting and, and very deliberately done. And now in the modern world, technology has progressed so far that now when you interact with someone that you don't know who's on the other end, you legitimately do have that natural Turing test. You have to, it, it's just naturally emerges if you have to ask your that question of, am I interacting with the human or am I interacting with the machine? And increasingly it, it's becoming more and more likely that if you don't know the person on the other end, that actually may be a machine. So I I think it is a question that we need to start asking ourselves. Um, And and unfortunately, I think we're going to see people further retreating into their their bubbles and their silos uh, already to this day. I don't, I don't, if I get a phone call from somebody and I don't recognize the number, I don't pick up the phone because there's so many scam calls and so many uh, fraudulent scams out there. And I, I think we're going to consistently see more and more of that with all of our interactions that unless you know who's on the other end and you have confidence in that, uh, you're going to be untrusting of those communications. And, and I think that's yep. that's unfortunate because it, it means that we, again, we retreat to our bubbles, to the the safety of the zones and the, the interactions that we're comfortable with and miss out on opportunities to, to connect with others. And so uh, I, I think that's kind of the direction we're moving though. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because it kind of to your earlier point, you mentioned trust just now. Um, uh, and I was going to ask the question, does it matter <laughs> if, if we know if it's human or not? Because um, it could be a human taking advantage of us <laughs> or, or a machine controlled by a, a bad actor taking advantage of us. I mean, just to, for example, I want to confirm confirm your credit card number before I proceed with troubleshooting your uh, your case with our with your purchase so, and and your shipping address. Can you confirm those things? Does it matter if it's human or a machine asking that question? We trust it differently and respond differently. That is a fantastic question, and I think at a micro level, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter. On an individual case-by-case basis, hopefully I will react with suspicion regardless of whether it's a human or a machine. But I think it does matter at a macro level, at a larger societal scale. And and the reason that I say that is because of the fact that there's a, a significant limiting factor in how many people are going to pursue criminal activity 
Um, you're, I mean, there's generally when you, you look at these scams, they're often in impoverished nations where they're unfortunately exploiting people who are in bad situations in order to get them to engage in these, these phone calls and voice scams. Um, and there's, there's a limited number of people that are willing to participate in that. And, uh, but once you move it over to machines, while it doesn't matter on an individual basis, whether it's a machine or a human, the ability to scale those criminal operations and those cyber attacks um, in, in that same sense, because of the fact that I no longer have to have somebody that is willing to collude with me that is going to try to actually manipulate people over the phone. I, I can automate the entire thing. And as long as I'm willing to pay for the compute, I can scale that infinitely. And so I, I think individually, no, it doesn't matter whether or not you're being attacked by a human or a machine. But it does because of the fact that it is now possible with machines the scale of the attacks that are going to be thrown against us the frequency of those attacks is going to be so much more than what we have experienced up until now and so keyword in the title uh name of the title just for reference for everybody the languages of deception uh, weaponizing next generation ai um that word deception there we go. Look at that. Uh, has, uh, yeah, to me, an important, uh, important thing to to talk about. You're you're talking about it here, but misinformation has been something we've heard about. We just came off a panel where we we're talking about um, using AI, generative AI, to uh, to I don't want to say rig, but manipulate or or change the direction of of elections to. Uh, perhaps write policies, perhaps to uh, generate law, perhaps to help judges decide cases. I mean, you name it, right? It's it's going to be looking back on history to predict and anticipate what you want to get out of this thing. But it can also be manipulated to where it can deceive us as a society. So talk to me a little bit about that and some of the things you you think the book can help with as people try to understand if they choose to embrace the technology, what should they be prepared for if they both from building it and from using it perspective? Yep. So I, I think anytime we have a profoundly powerful new technology, it inevitably is going to become a double-edged sword. It is going to have profound good uses, but it will also be, potentially weaponized. And, and I think this this case is no different. But uh, the, the reason that I, I picked the title Language of Deception, is, and uh, I guess it's worth saying that I don't think the technology itself is inherently deceptive. I, I think that it is extremely powerful, extremely capable technology. I'll, admittedly, I use it myself to accelerate my own workflows and the things that I'm trying to accomplish. The reason that I start out the book with looking at the sentient scare is because I want to distinguish between the fact that it's not the machines that are the problem. It's the potential of people with malicious intent misusing that technology to target other individuals and the fact that they can use it very effectively to do so. And so uh, the book does address things like uh, disinformation problems. It, it also looks at not just language models, but also how the underlying architecture of transformer-based neural networks can be used for multimodality now as well. So the fact that we can now create images and video and other types of media that is also deceptive and misleading. And, and we've seen a, a couple real world interesting cases of this recently. Uh, there was the situation a, a year or two ago where there was a false image that started circulating Twitter of a bombing at the Pentagon. And while it quickly was debunked, the brief period of time where that did start to circulate, it actually caused a, a significant dive in the stock markets. So that immediately shows the potential real-world impact that we could have with disinformation. And of course, you, you mentioned the election, that that only or opens up even more opportunities uh, for potential risks related to that disinformation. Um, another thing that I think is fascinating is, and, and I talk about this in the book as well, but there was uh, an event a few years ago in uh, Gabon, the country of Gabon. And the leader of that country was, he had suffered a stroke 
And so he disappeared from the public eye for a period of time while he was recovering from that stroke. And he then returned to do a uh, appearance in front of the people and to do a, a speech. And uh, of course, he's still recovering from the physical or physical and cognitive impacts of that stroke. So he had one of his arms was relatively still immobile. Um, he he was struggling with some of his speech and his wording. And uh, what was interesting was that there started circulating a rumor that that speech was actually a deep fake and that he wasn't, the leader was actually dead and that the, the country was being run by uh, somebody else. And it actually caused a, a real world insurrection. And there was a, an attempted coup. People tried to overthrow the government. And what's interesting about that is that this insurrection occurred not because of deep fake technology, but just because of the awareness, the awareness of the fact that it could be a deep fake. And so I, I think we're increasingly getting to a point where as a society, we're becoming increasingly less trusting of the information that's provided to us uh, because of the fact that we know that there's an increasing risk of that information being fabricated. And, and we acknowledge that we have an inability to effectively distinguish between what is real and what is fake. And unfortunately, I think that's another situation where people once again retreat to their, their polarized silos of what they already believe and just kind of continue to go down that rabbit hole because you don't, when you can't accept anything else that's coming in as true, you're, you're inevitably going to rely on what your foundations are. And so I, I think that creates a more closed-minded culture. I think it creates a more polarized culture. I think it creates more conflict in our society. And inherently, this uh, the, the disinformation that's coming out of this technology is, is or destabilizing our, our socio-political structures and our, our society as a whole. And uh, yeah. so I, I think there's a lot of challenges that we have to work through. And the book does look kind of at multiple different levels of kind of uh, what individuals can do to deal with those challenges, what businesses can do. Uh, but also, I, I think we have to we have to get on the same page on a global level because the, the scale of this is going to impact not just uh, individuals or businesses, but it is going to impact global society and human society as a whole. And so I, I think increasingly we have to start looking at what those global partnerships are and how uh, we can start building those partnerships and getting on the same page to to address some of these problems. Yep. Yeah. Lots of uh, lots of impact at the societal level. I've, I've heard a few stories of disgusting uh, cyber bullying. <laughs> That's at schools, so young young people uh, being uh, being abused using the technology. That's a very in intimate, personal uh, impact on on people. Which, yeah, I don't know what uh, the end result there is, and how to. I, I guess, yeah, it's it's opening up some really interesting. Um, Mm. new cans of worms that we've never had to deal with before. Cause you do, you mentioned the cyber bullying and there's also the mm. uh, increasingly the, the very unusual problem of now deep fake pornography and the, that's, yeah, the, that's what I was referring to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately with that, there is, uh, I, I'm now hearing stories of that. There is uh, essentially create or generated child pornography and the the fact that there are and I've heard from several legal people that there's challenges in even effectively prosecuting that because there is no real world victim or real world harm and that's disturbing that we we have to start grappling with issues like that but I, I think that uh and I think that that really just goes to show how fast this technology is moving. There are new challenges that are going to come at us uh, faster than we're ready for them. So I think the more that we can start to look ahead over the horizon, begin to anticipate what those future trends and risks are, the better equipped we're going to be to handle those. And I think that's just one more example of, I mean, and, and some of these conversations are going to be uncomfortable like that. It's going to, we're going to have to start uh, thinking in, in, and I think that why this was easier for me is I come from that penetration testing background. I come from that red teaming perspective of what would a bad guy do with this technology? And I, I think increasingly we as a society are going to start needing to think like that ahead of time, just to be able to proactively tackle these risks before they become a huge problem. Yep. Yeah. 
we, we could close here, but in true spirit, and Marco's not here to stop me, uh, I have one more question. And uh, I, I want to know your thought, because to me, to me, it it boils down to knowing the source of truth and having visibility into that. So who generated it? What generated it? When was it generated? How authentic? Are all the parts authentic? Is the context authentic? <laughs> Do we, to me, that's the core of it. And so it, I guess two part question. Do you agree that's the core of it? And if so, do you find a, a way that we can get to a place where we have that source of truth at the ready when we need it? Uh, yes, I do agree that that is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing. And I have actually put a lot of thought into um, how we go forward with this. I think that currently we're tackling it the wrong way. And by we, I just mean society as a whole. Um, we are. Currently, there are a lot of initiatives in Silicon Valley uh, to do content credentials, uh, essentially digital watermarking of various different generated content that if I run it through a checker, it will tell me, yes, it was generated by this model at this date, uh, this was the context, etc. Um, the problem with that, well, actually, there's multiple problems with that. The, the first is that most of those are, are trivial to strip out of those, those digital watermarks. Um, it's generally just a matter of removing metadata or uh, various other techniques, such as kind of randomizing the least significant bit in the data encoding of the, the file. Um, and, and so the problem becomes... Uh, if it's so easy to remove, what we need to move towards in, in order to effectively solve this is not a system that asserts that different content was generated by different models. Instead, we need to have a architecture or a system that asserts in all cases what the origin of something is. So it can't be easily stripped out. So what I'm thinking is something kind of like our certificate authority hierarchy that we have on the internet. We have a certain trusted certificate authorities that sign certificates for everyone. Every website should have certificates these days. I mean, there's a few outliers on the internet, but for the most part, 99.9% .9 of the internet is SSL encrypted and has certificates that are signed by an independent authority that says this is who you are accessing your information from. I think that rather than just having stuff that's generated, having that stamp of where it came from, we need to have everything asserting what its provenance, what its origin is, and then we need to have kind of independent ways to validate what that is. Now, the challenge is that uh, getting everybody on the same page, because it would have to be participation from everyone. Anytime I take a picture from my mobile phone, it would need to sign that picture as to where it came from. Uh, anytime you did anything as far as creating any kind of graphical content, you would need to have the software that was used in creating that solution uh, essentially put its stamp of approval. It would have to have its own uh, trusted authority. And there are some additional challenges that don't exist within websites, uh, such as within the CAI hierarchy, um, the certificate that's the signing certificate never has to leave servers that exist uh, that are not accessible to me. If I have a phone that is signing something and attesting to it, uh, the certificate exists on something that I have physical access to, I can very likely export that certificate and misuse it. So unfortunately, there's, while I think that a, a system where everybody asserts provenance is what we're going to need to get to. How we do that in a secure way also brings all kinds of new challenges uh, that don't exist within the existing internet CA hierarchy. So it is, it's a challenging problem to solve. Um, it is, yeah. I think that there, fortunately there are a lot of smart people that are investing time in, in trying to solve that problem. And uh, I am hopeful that we will get somewhere with that, but with as fast as this is moving, uh, hopefully it's uh, before something terribly bad happens. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting perspective. And and I was probably 15 years ago and I was working with the client that was looking at not specifically source of 
truth for the specific context we're talking about, but source of truth for transactions and contracts and things like that. And it's, it's blockchain based and because the CA is PKI, it doesn't scale. You have the, it's a centralized authority. It's not decentralized or shared and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, it's an interesting challenge. I didn't mean to open that can of worms, <laughs> but, uh, it was, I, I'm interested that you, uh, fascinated you went there with that um i could talk to you for hours justin and uh in lieu of that i'll listen to your podcast and continue learning and uh in lieu of in between that uh i'll be reading the book as well so i uh, hopefully uh hopefully everybody grabs a copy of it it's language of deception weaponizing next generation ai by our good friend justin hutchins aka hutch hutch it's been fantastic thanks so much yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sean, for having me on. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening and watching. I'll put a link into uh, into the show notes so you can grab the book uh, and Justin's profile on uh, host profile on ITSP Magazine. You can you can look at Social Sploit and all the other stuff he's been working on there. And uh, please, this is an important topic. Uh, share it uh, with your friends and colleagues and peers. And uh, and others within the organization and at home that you think need to know about this. So thanks everybody. We'll see you on the next show. Thanks, Justin. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at Pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at Imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.